You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? This is Typical Lydia without West Dead Air Nipe. He's off doing whatever it is West Nipe does when I'm not around. I'm sitting here in a special episode with my friend Amy Jane Vosper. Hello, Amy. Hello, Lydia. Thank you very much for having me today. Anytime. Today we're going to be talking about horror film, why we like horror film so much, Amy's career studying the monstrous feminine and the female experience as a horror spectator we're going to be talking a little bit about rape revenge films as well we just finished watching the 1999 french exploitation film Moi. it was released in 2000 and i have the canadian release here and it was just a great opportunity to share a film that i thought was really really important considering the influx of rape revenge film into the horror genre probably about four years ago it became the real go-to genre in film. But I want to backtrack a little bit from that broad generalization of what we'll be talking about today into Amy. When did you first become such a huge horror fan? Well, I think my first experiences with the horror genre uh, came from my family, actually. So I would watch horror films with my grandmother and my mother. And it seems to be this typical experience that supposedly it's young males watching horror, and yet it was me gathering with the women in my family and celebrating this kind of fear and this wonderful experience of being terrified together. And uh, from that moment on, I just kind of had this obsession with horror that just has lasted me well up to this point. (laughs) I had a really similar experience. I definitely watched um, horror film with my mom. I read horror uh, literature via my grandmother. And you're not kidding when you say um, submerge yourself in horror. We are literally surrounded by horror paraphernalia <laughs> sitting in Amy's abode. Where it's film and horror paraphernalia. There is horror in every corner I look. There are skulls. There are books. There are films. There are bats. We're actually recording on a coffin right yes, now. We are. <laughs> I love it, actually. I do love it. And I do love having another girl that isn't just a passive horror fan either. You are steeped in horror. This is your career. If you can explain a little bit about uh, the schooling that you're doing, some of the initiatives that you're taking with the Trent Film Society here in Peterborough, Ontario, and where you're going to be ultimately taking the next step in your career. Uh, So right now I'm working on my PhD and I'm looking at uh, female experiences of horror and I'm looking at fan culture a lot. I think it's a really interesting idea about being steeped in horror. So I tend to have horror, as you said, in my home. It's the books I'm reading. It's the films that I'm watching. It's my career. It's every facet of my life. And if you look at other genres of film, for instance, we're talking about comedy, there's no real subculture or fandom that just celebrates comedy in the way that horror is celebrated. So I found this to be a really interesting area that a lot of people weren't writing about academically. And it seemed to be this kind of privileging of the male spectator. It's this young male who's a fan. It's not the women. And I'm going, no, there are women definitely out there. So I kind of, my 
my area of research tended to focus on their experiences of fandom and fan culture. So I'd go to fan conventions and I'd actually do empirical research with these women, find out how they got into horror, why they love horror, what scares them, what doesn't scare them, what are the expectations and misconceptions that they experience in the fandom. So right now I am going to be finishing up my dissertation, doing this empirical research with these female spectators. And after that, I would like to continue on being a professor, and I will do film studies very broadly, but more specifically in my own work and research, keep working in the horror film genre. Uh, right now, I am one of the co-directors of the Trent Film Society, so it is a local film society that we do screenings once a week, and we show we try to show different films from around the world, independent films, foreign films, films that didn't have a chance to screen here in Peterborough because it's kind of a small town. You don't get that many exciting films coming here. Mm, yeah. And then I also wanted to bring in an element of the cult film uh, experience here in town because the other directors of the Trent Film Society have really focused on these independent features, which is absolutely wonderful, but I'm interested in seeing how people respond to cult films. So we're going to be showing Who Framed Roger Rabbit. We're going to be doing a screening of The Room. We're doing the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We want to do these kind of films that'll bring out people in droves. A lot of times I find you need to go to another city for that sort of experience. There are a lot of repertory theaters that show cult film, and they show them regularly. I'm thinking of the Mayfair Theater specifically, but then there's the theaters in every larger city that do typically show these films, or they'll have a special spectacular or a weekend where they're showing a lot of cult favorites, or film festivals do. Uh, it's really nice to see them being brought in, especially under the umbrella of the university. I think, to, to get that experience, especially in a smaller town that you might have to travel outside of to get that same experience, or watching them at home. So you get that real impact of being able to watch them with fellow fans, new fans, people who would have never seen it or only heard of it, or have only had the experience of watching it in their living rooms. It's a completely different experience watching a film in a group. Just everybody's reactions, if everybody's laughing at the same parts, everybody's jumping at the same jump scare, it becomes a really communal experience. And like you said, sitting at home watching a movie, it's just not the same thing. So the Trent Film Society really enjoys bringing these strange and obscure films in. But one of my absolute favorite parts is when the film ends and we all just sit and have this wonderful discussion. And people have all these different film backgrounds. Everybody's seen different films. Everyone has different areas that they're very interested in. So they can bring this wealth of knowledge and we have these incredible discussions and sometimes debates. And it's one of the most rewarding experiences of being involved with the Trent Film Society, I feel. That's one of the things that me and Wes try to capture with Dead Air is that conversation that happens right after a film. We typically watch a film and hit record, sort of what I'm subjecting you to right this minute. Um, watching a film and getting that fresh input and that fresh discussion and being able to trade those ideas coming from different backgrounds and different uh, wells of knowledge, considering the other films that people have watched. It is sort of a film snobbery thing, and I get picked on a little bit about it, being like, oh my god, what do you mean you haven't seen this film? Or then you start spitting out everything that this director has put out and the other people are just clueless, right? And it's not necessarily cred-checking, and it's not necessarily snobbery, it's just where you're coming from. 
Exactly. And a passion. Like, if you're pursuing these certain directors, you're pursuing these different types of films, you are often a collector. You are a fan in the fanatic sense. You are going to go to the convention. You are going to root through every bin until you find the, you know, one release of this DVD that you're just dying to watch. And I find that that is something that I was sort of writing about, this new experience of having this community that unfolds in the dark in the theater. So we all are banded together to watch something or at a screening like with the Trent Film Society. You're all together, you're watching a film, and then the film ends and the spell breaks and everybody goes home and does their own thing. Now, people take to the internet. We have these online communities. So the second that you're done watching the film, you might go home and write a huge blog post about having seen this film. Someone else who just watched it is going to read your blog post, and then they're going to do something in response. They're going to do a YouTube video and talk about their review of the film, and they're going to mention you in that way. Suddenly, we have this involvement, this community that expands from what started at the theater and now into this wonderful sort of global sphere. I find it truly fascinating. Yeah, I think it's especially fascinating in your field of study when it um, hinging on the female experience with horror film. Uh, even now to this day, since there are, and there wasn't so much when you started studying, but now there are several books and there are other people like yourself. You're not so alone. <laughs> Thank God. Um, in studying the female response and female experience in being a fan of horror or working in behind the scenes as a horror filmmaker or actress. Um, but I still feel awfully alone, even with all of this new knowledge that we have and these new studies being done. Uh, I still feel awfully alone because somebody tries to tell me what my experience is. And often I feel the dead opposite. And then I start looking for my penis because I'm sure it's there somewhere, considering how someone has just told me how I'm supposed to girl and how I'm supposed to girl in horror and I just, it doesn't compute and it doesn't meet up with what I'm experiencing. So I find it just not only fascinating, wildly important and doubly important when I agree or disagree. I love it. Um, do you find that the female experience in the theater or at home is changing? Because I found men typically band together and it's a group of guys that go to the film to the theater to watch a horror film mm -hmm. I was always watching them alone granted there's many of my male friends that watched lots of horror alone but it seemed more common for men to band together to watch a horror film and females to be sequestered the weird one the, the dark goth girl the horror chick the freak um do you find that women are more vilified for watching horror and are more alone? Definitely. Um, I'm very excited that you brought this up because this was something I addressed in my MA research when I was doing my, my first empirical study with these female fans. And it was something that uh, when you and I started talking horror when we first met, mm -hmm. I was so excited because you weren't shying away from graphic violence. You weren't bothered by these things that society and just all these academic studies are telling me, oh, you're a woman, you're not going to like that. Mm -hmm. you, you're going to like this kind of horror film. And I thought it was really interesting that we could kind of talk about this on that level. As far as women going to the theater, so much research that has been done into horror fandom and the experience of the horror spectator only privileges this male spectator. And when I was looking into this, a lot of the studies were justifying this decision by saying women aren't going to the theater to see horror films, so they're not watching horror. 
So it became this thing that, like you said, young men go out in a group and they go watch a horror film. These are numbers at the box office saying mm-hmm. this many young men came to this screening of The Conjuring or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they sat down and watched it. They paid their money and we have those numbers. They're not accounting for the fact that often women will watch horror either by themselves or in a group of other women, but in their own homes. Mm -hmm. And it's a different experience. So it's looking like on paper, women aren't watching horror, but they are. Their consumption practices are just different than men. So this is something I really wanted to address with a lot of my research, because when I was talking to these female horror fans, they're watching horror. They are watching it and they are sometimes watching it with other people. But we have this conception that it's a young man in a group going to see a horror movie or it's the man taking the female date to go see the horror movie and it's not her choice to see it. How did you consume horror when you first kind of got into it? Uh, Definitely with my mother, as we both did. We definitely watched uh, films with our grandmothers and mothers. Um, My dad wasn't a big fan of horror and he never, like, my mom and him went to see The Exorcist. Uh, as a date back Mm. before I was born I suppose or when I was born Um, but it wasn't like a hey baby let's go see a scary movie so I can keep you safe Mm -hmm. (laughs) my big manly arms it wasn't (laughs) like that like he was pretty cool about it but he's not a horror fan Um, I had a lot of male friends of course and I definitely watched horror films with my male friends I mostly watched them alone Uh, a lot of times my male friends didn't like the same sort of horror as I did. Or I wanted to rewatch things where they weren't all yakking through it. I wanted to watch it and pay attention to it. Or just something I wanted to see again. A lot of them didn't like religious horror. Mm. A lot of them were into more uh, action horror. I like slashers and stuff, but that seems really more of what my male friends were watching. Where I wanted to watch more religious horror and more psychological horror and things like that. So it was sort of mostly alone a lot of times with my family, the females in my family, or with my male friends. But very rarely, very, very rarely in a date context. Mm. I wasn't usually that girl that was brought to the theater um, because I don't like really going to the theater. Dating isn't really my favorite thing to do. (laughs) It's awkward and strange. And to watch something like a scary film where I'm way more into it than they are, maybe it attacks my masculinity a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. I could definitely see that. And the experience of watching something on your own changes how you consume what you're watching. So I know that I will watch a terrible, terrible horror movie that has the worst reviews and everyone's like, it is a complete waste of your time. And I almost feel guilty about thinking about subjecting somebody else to that. I'm like, this is my personal guilty pleasure. I'm going to sit and watch that, but I can't force anybody else to sit and watch this terrible movie. I might watch it twice. No one can stop me because I'm doing it on my own. Where when I watch horror with other people, I feel very conscious of what I'm watching and what I'm choosing to watch with these people, what I'm choosing to subject them to. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, for the most part, uh, a lot of men that I've either dated or talked horror shop with not all of them but a lot of them don't like horror in the same way that I do they don't want to watch horror. my mom's boyfriend terrified of horror films my dad he won't watch horror with me there's just it's not an option you know Mm -hmm. it was a very strange experience of being so interested by this thing but again I always felt 
like a little bit of guilt about it. Like I shouldn't like this. I was always reading, I think you had the same thing, of these true crime and serial killer books. And everyone always kind of gave me the look of you like, you're a young kid reading these. But they're fascinating to me. But it always was this kind of creepy, morbid thing. Like maybe I wasn't supposed to be exposed to that world or something. Yeah, guys definitely experienced the whole, oh, who's that? Why are you reading all that freakish stuff, you freak? Mm-hmm. You're like, <laughs> you're steeping yourself in freaky freakdom. You're like horror and killers and that's all you do so i think that's almost like devoid of a gender label like it definitely you get looked at as a freak when it's all you do and unfortunately for some of us for good or bad it is all we do it's all we're really interested you watch some comedy and stuff like that from time to time but i just don't it's just as bad for a male or a female especially as a young person to be interested in true crime killers death and murder and horror all the time it's only a little bit worse if you're a nice sweet blonde little girl (laughs) that everyone it doesn't they don't expect it so it's almost weirder it is almost weirder i got that when i was doing my ma there was a lovely secretary that worked in the department and i just never talked about my research with her she knew you know all the students had their own little areas that they were researching but we never really talked about it until i was doing my defense and she came up and she said to me you're studying horror? And I'm like, yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm a bubbly, happy, kind of hugging everybody kind of gal. And she looks at me and shakes her head and just goes, you can never tell. And I, I'm just thinking, well, so in your head you're going this, like I put her into this little box and there's no chance she's going to like horror. Why would she write about something like this? And she had to come and confirm with me that this was not an error. This is actually my area of research. And a lot of people just don't seem to expect it. But then again, when I start talking to women, so many of them love horror films. I'm like, oh, did you watch this movie? Even if they don't like it, they're like, oh, yeah, I saw that. And yeah, I saw its sequel. And I saw the thing (laughs) that came out the next year. It was terrible. It gave me nightmares. But they're still pursuing it. They still want to watch it for some reason. Yeah, they're not so weirded out that we're not just into Freddy Krueger. It's beyond, you know, the Saw films. It's not Mm -hmm. just horror in that nice little you know easily digestible tiny bubble of stuff that's being released in the theater and the big blockbuster horrors it's some subversive horror it's some extreme horror and it's foreign horror it's classic horror you're a huge uh, Gordon Herschel Lewis fan you're a very well versed in your William Castle but you're right I tend personally I tend to pursue horror on every possible level so I started with horror literature Sometimes it was fictional horror, but then sometimes it was, you know, serial killers and true crime. That progressed to me watching horror films. And I became so enamored and in love with horror that any type of horror film I'll go and watch. So when you start becoming involved in the horror community, word gets out. So like, have you seen this, you know, strange new film that just came out? You don't want to go and pursue, you know the latest sequel of the Saw franchise when you know there's this like hidden kind of gem that you know the internet's you know sparking and talking about I want to go find that one I also find that when people say don't watch this movie it's too gross it's going to be too graphic oh it's going to be so disturbing those are the films that I can't help but go find I'm like I have yeah, to watch it yeah they bumped up to the top of your to watch list and your, your horizons are continuously broadened especially by people saying not only oh my god have you seen this but oh god you should never watch that mm-hmm. and yeah I definitely have that same experience um 
And it is super broad, and I'm definitely constantly thinking about horror, if not just consuming it all its time. You've made it a career, and it's not just like that little tiny bubble either. It is a very, very broad and continuously broadening huge pool of ourselves that is steeped in horror. Now, the recent changing in genres I found the past four years with uh, Rape Revenge really included women into the dialogue whether it was against their will or not <laughs> women were yeah so women that was were rather being, fitting <laughs> it, no it is and no yeah no pun intended i'm really bad for those <laughs> not funny and unintentional puns <laughs> so suddenly it wasn't just like oh my god this movie is so intense have you seen it it was like oh my god have you seen the rape scene in this and it was instantly very female oriented in the darkest way and having forcing women into having dialogues about films that everyone was watching because like it or not a lot of people have were consuming all of this i spit on your gray the remakes of um that and last house on the left and a very broad general public audience interest in rape revenge and it became whether it really fit or not into the horror genre many of these films were quickly adopted into the horror dialogue and the horror from the female perspective and horror from the male gaze onto the female. Um, did you find that in the past four years, or is it just me? Am I crazy with this sudden, yeah, forced entry of rape revenge into the horror genre? No, I don't think you're crazy at all. I definitely have seen a lot of this happening. Like you said, a lot of it came from these remakes of these classic rape revenge tales. And then we see suddenly so much popularity for these films there was an inundation with them suddenly we have you know i spit on your grave too i don't i, I haven't watched that i don't know how you Trailer can make... park of terror i loved it <laughs> park? It? No, oh no. it's great yeah but there's these films and it's funny that you bring it up in relation to you know through the female lens and you know the female spectators experience of that because these films are often associated as female oriented horror because it's it's happening to a woman and then we take you know a film where we have our final girl show up and i mean i can argue about that i can talk about that from a monstrous feminine perspective i can take a feminist approach i can do whatever i want with those films but you don't look at those films all the time and say you know this film is a you know a female oriented horror film because we have a final girl you have a rape revenge you're definitely going to call this a female-oriented film. So it kind of was this interesting sort of change that we were seeing happening in the industry. You mentioned home invasions as mm -hmm. well. And this was a real broadening of that because when I was doing my research, um, I mentioned to you that there was this separation in a lot of the literature where men fear a threat from an external so something out in the woods coming and getting them, some kind of external strange threat, something yeah. they don't know. Because last night we were talking about how Wes is so afraid of the woods. <laughs> and that's, that's supposedly what scares men more. They're more scared of that. And we can bring that back to a very, you know, Freudian, Lacanian sort of fear of, you know, the external penetration, you know, the something coming from the outside and attacking the inside, where women supposedly are more scared of films that involved home invasion or rape or something that's happening on the domestic front usually perpetrated by someone they know 
such as like a possession film. So you have someone that you know being possessed by a demon and suddenly you don't know that person anymore. Yeah, and the monster's within and infiltrated your tiny, nice, warm little womb that you've cultivated and feathered. Exactly. So with these, you know, rape revenge films and then the home invasion films, I feel like they were really speaking to this female fear, if, if we can call it that. Sometimes I find creating these gender binaries just doesn't work in that way. Yeah. But that's the literature, that's what they're suggesting with it, that, you know, it's this external fear for the men and an internalized fear for the women. And when you start seeing the popularity and seeing what people are watching, you can say, actually, you know, this, this kind of aligns. And to take it to a, a sociological sort of place, if you look at criminal statistics, men are more likely to be the victim of a crime perpetrated by a stranger, where women are more likely to, uh, sorry, a violent crime, uh, yeah. women are more likely to be perpetrated uh, by a, someone they know, by a familiar person. So th these statistics line up with what becomes an actual fear, and then it's represented through film, and then we're going to pay our, you know, five bucks and go in and get terrified. Yeah, and, and whether it's by... Um, accident or by research that they're doing this and preying on these psychological, very real psychological fears that we have whether men or women. I do feel bound into the gender binary especially talking about film and I always feel really like resistant to it. So I'm watching something like a, a rape revenge film and I'm like this is not for me. This is absolutely not for me at all and it's not because I'm turned off by it. A lot, a lot of the times the um, reactions that I feel that I'm expected to have to these films, I'm just not fucking having. Mm -hmm. So I'm watching a film that's supposed to be for men, and I'm having the reactions that I'm supposed to be having, although I'm a girl. A lot of how it started this conversation last night, because we had watched The Hills Run Red. Um, we, well, Wes and I had reviewed this film earlier in Dead Air, and it is a final girl film, definitely, and it's got this rebirth of a heroine halfway through where she you know, is, should be scared off and running and she has a chance to run, but she stops and fights back because she's got a little bit of a revenge um, drive going on in herself. And I feel myself responding to that film more like a guy would, you know? And that's when we started talking about how home invasions don't really scare me. I like them. I love watching a good home invasion film. It's one of my favorite genres next to hillbilly horror because that's my number one, that... In the woods, like, you know, the rape revenge films and home invasion films weren't scary to me. I liked them, but they weren't scary. Mm -hmm. I felt that I wasn't getting the fear of that in the same way. I We screened a film for the Trent Film Society, Man Bites Dog. Have you uh. seen this? No, but I've heard very much about it, and I want to see it. I'd heard a lot about it. Uh, this was one of the first times we screened a film where none of us had seen it. First. Oh, God. And uh, we ended up having a very poor turnout for it. It was unfortunate. But one of the um, members of the Trent Film Society recommended this film. He was he wanted to screen it last year, and he didn't have the opportunity, so he pitched it to us. And we decided, yes, we're going to watch it. So it ends up, we have Next to Nobody turn out, and I'm the only female there. There is a pretty graphic rape scene in it, followed by, um, I'm not trying to give spoilers here, but... Uh, followed by a murder and you only see bits and pieces of it but there's also there's so much graphic violence in this film it's a and it's very it's always done in kind of a humorous way like you're you're following for people who don't know man bites dog you're following around the documentary crew watching a serial killer so you're seeing him kill people and he's talking to the documentary crew telling why he kills people how he goes about it 
And so there's all of these brutal graphic murders throughout it. And then we have this rape scene about halfway through. It was a disturbing rape scene. Don't get me wrong. But at the end, the man who had pitched us watching this movie came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder and apologized profusely for the rape scene. Not for anything else that happened, but he felt like personally responsible for having put me through that. There was other stuff in it that disturbed me more. But, you know, I, I did have I did have a reaction to that because I was not expecting that at all. And it is it's a graphic moment in the film. But he felt that he had to come up to me because I obviously would have been so bothered by this. No one else in the room is he apologizing. Yeah, but the yeah. one girl I got to go say, I'm so sorry about the rape in there. Like, are you OK? It's almost like treating you just because you're a woman, you're probably a rape victim, right? Mm, of course, because yeah. all women are, right? Yeah, of Doesn't course. that make sense? Or you, like, you probably know a rape victim, so you're obviously going to be so horribly appalled that he suggested a rape scene, right? And I watch so many movies that have such terrible, terrible images of violence and rape and brutality that you become desensitized to it to an extent. And this is your field of study. Exactly. I I pursue this. I purposely go out and watch the nastiest things I can find. I want to watch it. I feel, you know, like this helps me with my research. This helps me with the work that I want to do and helps me understand the genre better. So when someone comes up and apologizes to me for something like that, it felt very like you're not taking my work seriously. You think I can't handle this in some capacity but I these are the things that I go out and see this is nothing to me have you seen I spit on your grave you know like that's a 30 minute rape scene in there and brutal very very hard to sit through don't get me wrong but I've seen so much worse and it feel that he had to come up and apologize it was a very very strange situation for me I've not had that kind of thing before but again this idea of the rape revenge being very associated with the female you know a female can identify with that and when I did my empirical research uh, for my MA, I asked people to rank their favorite subgenres of horror. Okay, cool. And uh, at the top, uh, the very, very top was psychological horror. Mm-hmm. People really liked them some psychological horror. Right underneath that was serial killer films, which was unexpected. High and fives, everybody. I was job. very happy with that. But at the very bottom, the least amount of votes was the rape revenge films. Huh, interesting. And you were conducting this research at the time when they were very hot. Yes, very, very popular. So this is suggesting the women supposedly, you know, are going and seeing, they can resonate, these are the films that are scaring them, but it seems to be the men that are watching these films and maybe enjoying them more or enjoying the genre, the subgenre of the rape revenge more than the female fans, the female-identified fans, right? I suppose it's because... In the face of what I had to say about, you know what, I enjoy watching Home Invasion and Rape Revenge films very much. They're not my number one either. This fits into your research. But I don't, I'm not scared by them at all. But I love being scared. And I watch scary movies to be scared. I'm more scared by hillbilly horror and being lost in the woods. These things that are typically supposed to scare men. And I seek out those films like, my by the millions give me them all shitty ones good ones new ones old ones i don't care if it's a hillbilly horror you're lost in the woods then of course like um home invasion rape revenge religious it's all sort of i just like horror in general right not so much with the zombies and monsters go way at the bottom oh i love my monsters (laughs) (sighs) you are a monster i know very monstrous and feminine (laughs) what was the last movie that scared you 
The last film that scared me. Like, abs, like truly, really scared me. Or ga- gave you some kind of fright, disturbed your sleep, gave you that kind of disturbing feeling. You know, that kind of feeling in the pit of your stomach? Well, this has been, this was asked on a previous episode about what scares me. And it's not, I had had an answer about like being afraid to walk home after watching Christine when I was about 13. But you said the last film. Yeah. So now I'm going to think about, like, okay, the last film that scared me. I think about films a lot. The films do disturb me. Not as deeply as most people, because I don't just don't, I just don't really have much emotional response like most people. But the last film that made me afraid to walk home was probably about two years ago, three years ago, or whenever it came out, or it was popularized. I guess the remake was being made of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm. And... This ties into a conversation I was having the other night with Sean Moreland and his wife uh, about horror, and we were talking about Irreversible, which mm-hmm. ties into the film that we watched today, Bese Moi, because there was an acknowledgement to Gaspar No in that, and I watched his film Irreversible, which features what is probably the absolute most heinous, worst rape scene ever on film. It's very, very disturbing. Um, I've seen it maybe four times. I really enjoy that film a lot. Um, but it doesn't disturb me the way that there's maybe a 30-second scene in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo that made me afraid to walk home. It made it got me thinking because it really touched me. Because all of these very heinous rape-revenge films, I haven't been necessarily in that sort of situation, especially this very long and drawn-out, unblinking eye very violent being raped to death that Mm. hasn't happened to me today the night is young (laughs) um so it's this 30 second scene in girl with the dragon tattoo she's alone in the scene it's probably 30 seconds she's walking down the road under the street light after the most heinous rape and she's sort of staggering in pain and it's hard for her to walk Mm-hmm. And that struck me because I've not like not only you can be in a in that sort of alone in the street late at night in pain, having a hard time walking for a number of reasons. And a number of women have probably been more in that situation than in an almost rape to death scenario in the most heinous rape revenge. So that actually struck me more than the most heinous violent rape on film. And I got a few strange looks, and they were kind of taken aback by that answer. So in the answer to your question, the last movie that actually disturbed me was that 30-second scene in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo that made me say to my friend that I was watching the film with, like, I don't feel like walking home after that. It just got me thinking way, way too much, right? For a 30-second scene. Think of all the horror that I watched. Yeah. And it was that that little tiny bit. Yeah. But I think it's a really interesting sort of idea too because we have this like we have these rape revenge films that we see so frequently and we have you know our that the heinous rape scene there's always you know this really really heinous rape scene that you know sparks the entire the entire narrative but it's that moment afterwards so i mean and i spit on your grave when she's like you know kind of crying and pulling herself together like that is the really, really disturbing point. You know, this kind of person collecting herself before she, you know, gains back her power and, you know, gets her revenge. It's that kind of, that moment that is too, it's more real. It's hyper real, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's that walking home after this terrible thing. Like, 
you have to get back to your regular life. You're you're going to, but you're staggering home, you know? And it's it's a terrifying moment. I remember I was watching an interview with Wes Craven. It was probably a special feature on one of the Scream films or something like that. And he was talking about cutting a funeral scene from one of his horror films because he felt that it changed the dynamic of the slasher film to have this moment of everybody grieving over the body so it's one thing to show the dead body or to get it you know to see someone get attacked or cut up or whatever happens to them but it changes things it's it brings stuff way too close to reality to have that moment of the mother crying at the funeral and you know the really sad sort of moment of everybody realizing the life has to go on now that this person is gone and it really struck me hearing Wes Craven talk about you know he, he couldn't have that in the movie because it was just too much yeah because that's no fucking fun no the roller coaster ride's fun puking after no one wants to see exactly. that exactly so that's why those scenes to me are so powerful right yeah. you know the staggering afterwards the pulling yourself together like that and that also speaks to how amazing an actress is if you can really believe that moment and you're like that person is like dealing with a huge trauma right now you know yeah that was an amazingly acted and filmed bit as well the whole film is is pretty amazing but that that scene was just done extremely well and it was fairly hard hitting for me anyway uh i don't know about other people the rape seems to be the thing that hits people hardest because that's what everyone talks about but maybe they're not really talking about what actually got to them Mm -hmm. i think there's when the movie american mary came out Mm -hmm. uh it's the Soska Sisters, a Canadian independent horror film about a woman. She's a medical student and she's trying to make ends meet. And so she gets into this world of doing... Um, these... Black market surgery, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these body modifications. But she's also kind of becoming a serial killer at the same time. But it is, in essence, a rape revenge film. And this was something that people were writing about right after this film came out and criticizing it because they weren't expecting it to be a rape revenge film. It's almost they wanted her to become this killer of her own accord. They didn't want this like terrible pivotal moment where her life changes and she becomes this cold heartless person and goes and does her thing. And they wanted her to be crazy on her own accord or have like the same backstory as most male serial killers do. Most mm-hmm. like serial killers do just of a bad childhood or whatever. And it it almost seems like we expect, you know, a man can go and be a serial killer. He can have this bad childhood or whatever, you know. Or he can just be nuts. Or, yeah, he can just be nuts. But a woman should be controlled. She needs a moment that she just has to go, okay, I'm done with, you know, social propriety. I'm done being, you know, a good human. I'm killing people now. And it's usually, in horror at least, it's a rape. That's That's the quickest way to get there, I suppose. You break her down. Yeah. And that is, it's it's a strange convention that we rely on a lot. And if you actually sit and think about a lot of horror films, you, you start to see this kind of pattern of emerging. And it, it's disturbing to me to see that. Yeah, it's more disturbing to see that than it is to see that. You know, you can sit through all the rape revenge films you want, and it's not really all that disturbing. But when you think about why it needs to be done that way, that's far more disturbing than what you've seen on film. Definitely. Another amazingly important reason to continue research, and I'm very, very, very glad that you are, and I'm very glad that we've been able to have these conversations, because like any woman watching horror film, I did feel so terribly alone. (laughs) Now, we did watch what I think is probably the, the definitive, the godmother, if you will, of rape revenge film. It is a an amazing 
uh, rape revenge story. It's not amazingly filmed. It's not. It's it's well acted, but it's not acted by any name actors by any means at all. It's filmed uh, in video. It, the lighting is tr- atrocious. Mm-hmm. The sound is okay, but it doesn't really the the soundtrack doesn't really fit at all. Uh, some of the filmmaking decisions are are bad. Um, the dialogue is bizarre. It is bizarre. The conversations. There's a few kind of interesting meta conversations of you know we should start saying these things when we you know kill people yeah where's our snappy one-liners you're kind of it it took me aback you know to have the characters flat out say that you know oh i was supposed to say something clever in that moment Mm -hmm. even some of the stuff at the beginning where it's uh one girl ragging on another for masturbating all the time it's not even really a scene it's sort of like ad-libbed almost a lot of the dialogue feels very ad-libbed it's not a good film the way that the I Spit on Your Graves are and, and Last House on the Left and things like that. Those are really well-filmed films, really well-lit films. Really, They're um, scored really, really well. This isn't. But what did you think? What did you think? I haven't even asked you what you thought yet. I really enjoyed it, actually. I feel like it was... You mentioned Thelma and Louise when you first were kind of pitching this film to me, and I definitely got the Thelma and Louise vibe. Um, I found the characters genuinely unlikable. And when I'm watching a film, I love to have a character that, you know, I can I can resonate with. I can say, okay, that, that character speaks to me on a personal level. There's no character in this film for me on that level. But I still wanted to watch their adventure. I still wanted to go with them. There was a moment where we were talking about... Um, the two females uh, staying with this couple that they just met, sorry, a brother and sister that they just met. And I was talking about how I I wouldn't be able to trust these girls, but I still want to see their story. I still want to go on this entire adventure with them. But it was a very odd sort of putting yourself into that place where, you know, another serial killer I might be okay with, you know. Um, You know, Hannibal Lecter, you know, you might have a certain level of distrust with him depends on when he'd most recently fed i um, love hannibal lecter he's a charmer i think you know what he's cultures he's civilized he eats people we all have flaws you know like I, i'm totally okay with hannibal i think i think he's a good dude these two are far too unpredictable i know i agreed with you that i probably wouldn't have let them in my home no. and you know even if they had helped me out just i'd feel no real like uh, i wouldn't feel like i owed them anything at all and I know that they wouldn't feel that I did owe them anything because they really do not give a fuck um, the plot basically of Basim was um, Nadine and Manu and Nadine is a sex worker and she treats her roommate like shit and she has a lot of junkie friends and she'll help out her junkie friends but she really does not give a fuck she likes to just walk around smoke dope listen to music fuck guys get money and rinse and repeat that's all she really cares to do she doesn't really want anyone questioning her and she'll probably just react with a a really like apathetic response if any at all if not just putting on her headphones and going and fucking somebody (laughs) seems to be her thing to do and Manu is kind of similar in that way she she doesn't want really anyone questioning her and she does care more about drinking and hanging out than and she has some junkie friends that she'll help out but she doesn't really like care about anybody and she seems to have a really bad relationship with 
the men in her world. They all treat her like shit. They definitely shove her around, and her response to most of it is to give them the finger and walk off to the next guy that's going to treat her like shit, like her own brother. Mm-hmm. So they're definitely like... They're definitely at odds with the world. They don't seem to give a shit or really do anything about it because all they really care about is just kind of partying and carrying on. Mm -hmm. Their paths cross right after Nadine kills her roommate, mostly for questioning her whatsoever Mm -hmm. about the people she keeps company with. Manu has just suffered a rape, which we'll get into in a second, but she suffers a rape and then... Uh, has a conversation about the rape with her brother where he doesn't really ask her how she's feeling and he's more concerned about the people she's spending time with much like Nadine's roommate she kills him again because he's questioning who she's spending time with so they've definitely met because they both committed these separate murders they definitely have something in common and they don't just have this long conversation to find out they have so much in common that they should hook up and hang out they basically pass each other in in a hall and decide to hang out. It's really that simple. They don't have a big, deep conversation by any means. But then to backtrack a little bit to the rape that really set them in motion, Manny was hanging out with a different junkie friend of hers, and they decide to get some beers. And they're sitting at a park, like at the riverside, and just drinking their beer, hanging out and chatting, and three men suddenly come upon them, suddenly kidnap them and take them to a secluded parking lot and proceed to rape the two of them. Now I want to talk a little about the reactions of the women and the nature of the rape scene in itself because it does not endure like a typical rape revenge film. It's not the centerpiece of the film. We don't get a lot of input as to who this girl is or these girls that are getting raped. Uh, The lead character of the two lead characters, only one of them actually is a participant in this group rape scene. The other one isn't raped at all. And it is very, very, very explicit. It is pornographically explicit in this rape scene, even though the duration is very, very short. The reaction of the woman who is one of our two lead characters isn't what you'd expect. Not at all. She is so She's so detached in the entire film So I don't know why I would have expected in this moment her to have some kind of emotional reaction. But you're right, she just, it's just nothing. You know, she just lets it happen and there's no fighting back. She's not enjoying it. But she uses her words as her weapons in that. And that's what ends up ending her rape. And I found that kind of fascinating because when people approach horror they often talk about this idea of Lacan's idea of the symbolic order so this is the law of the father this is the world of language so supposedly to stop a monster we have to go to religion we have to go to the law of the father use patriarchy use the in the name of the father I cast you Mm -hmm. out kind of thing so it becomes the women go on much more an intuitive you know emotional sort of you know, battle where men use their words to fight. So I thought it was really interesting that it was her criticizing this man that gets him to not be able to perform sexually anymore, and then he just kind of gives up and walks away. Yeah, I kind of worried right at that moment where she insults his dick while he's raping her. This is a pretty gutsy move Mm -hmm. that that's her death sentence. I really did. But he does just give up and walk away. Mm -hmm. And then when she's consoling somewhat her friend that was raped alongside her who is freaking out 
She is freaking the fuck out a lot like you would expect from somebody who has just been violently raped. Mm -hmm. She's covered in blood, being raped, her clothes are missing. She's just watched her friend be raped. It was horrible. There were three men against two women in this. It was very, very horrible. And she is losing her shit. She can't keep herself together. She's crying. She's shaking. And she doesn't understand why Manu is not freaking out as well. And Manu basically says to her, it's just a cock. It'll be okay now. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, okay, she has the exact same attitude from the very beginning, um, dealing with the crappy men that she's had to deal with that we've met in the last five minutes, because this all happens very fast, uh, to during the rape. She's just as nonchalant, apathetic, given fucks. Yeah. Or, well, sorry. <laughs> well, he makes a comment at one point. It's like fucking a zombie. He yeah. says that to her. And I thought that was just wonderfully descriptive of the kind of reaction she has to the world not just the rape but to all of these terrible things that have been happening to her she just sort of she's very zombie like she just sort of lets it wash over and she's like all right you know the fun thing is already by this point moments ago it was established she's a porn actress Mm -hmm. so she is not like fucking a zombie in her day job no She's not, like, fucking a zombie, I guess, on a good day either. But, I mean, she shuts right down. And she even mm-hmm. says, there's nothing. I le- You don't leave anything in your car when you park it downtown. I don't think leave anything in my vagina for these men. Mm-hmm. Which I think is why it doesn't, it's not as, uh, I wouldn't say it's not effective. It's definitely an effective scene. Mm-hmm. It definitely sets the wheels in motion for the plot. It does its job as a rape revenge film. But... I think it sends a more powerful message than these other rape revenge films, which you are going to have something precious torn away. You are going to be terribly traumatized. You are going to have to claw your way back up into normalcy, if ever at all. Or you are going to hunt down these men and kill them. Mm -hmm. This says, instead, completely differently than most films, they're not taking anything precious that you don't give to them. You are going to be perfectly fine moments later. Mm-hmm. You are going to remain cold, and you might not go back to the life that you had before, but you're probably just going to go off on a complete rampage. Maybe never find these men, but just kill everyone that goes in your path, which is a fucking fucked up message. It's a really fucked up message. It is. There's a lot of fucked up messages in this film, and I think that the entire rape scene was just done so differently than any other rape scene I've seen in a film. So, number one, we have terrible, terrible lighting through a lot of this film. But the rape scene is so brightly lit. And again, I feel like we're not used to that. We're used to these kind of maybe more artsy shots and this kind of like gritty sort of nasty. This is very clear. You're seeing everything. Like you said, borders on pornographic. Like you you are watching penetration. But at the same time, it's not like this big, huge, climatic, pardon the pun, uh, this big, huge, climatic experience like in a film like I Spit on Your Grave where you see a turning point. Like she has all of this happen to her and then she, you know, goes and changes. This girl reacts to the world and starts killing people and goes on this spree, but there's no moment where you say, all right, she went off now, you know? Yeah, yeah, her, she's been psychologically changed. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. She's, uh, she's pretty much exactly who we met three seconds before that happens exactly and then the fight with her brother i found really and very shocking to me when Mm -hmm. she kills her brother because his 
immediate reaction when she says that she's been well he guesses she's been raped yeah because she's been roughed up before i guess this is just a theme in her life and we've already gotten that that men treat her poorly she gets roughed up by men he even roughs her up Mm -hmm. as in a brotherly way um a far more brotherly way than the men she's known but he's like hey it happened to you again didn't it and she gives him a look and he says were you raped and he's very seriously concerned and she gives him another look and he guesses yes correctly Mm -hmm. But he goes and he gets a gun right away and he goes, who did it? Like, and his first instinct is a protective one. Now, I understand she was very upset. You know, he didn't ask if I was okay, which would have been the right thing. But again, that's a very protective, natural reaction to be like, this was my sister. I'm going to like, who was it? I'm taking this guy down. And so I found it shocking when she killed him because, you know, this is someone, yeah, he roughs you up and he's done these things, but to some extent, going and getting the gun and threatening the person, he's trying to care for you in his fucked up kind of way. He's trying to do something. And she just, in cold blood, murders her brother. And to me, it just, like, I couldn't believe it. I did. I gasped when we were watching. I went, oh oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) And the first time I watched it, I didn't expect it much either. Uh, But she is explaining her thought process while she's doing it of you know you don't even care about me you didn't ask me how I was and all you care about is going and starting fights with people Mm. and she it makes her sick Mm -hmm. and I guess this has been brewing for quite some time between these two (laughs) and she's had quite enough and is putting her foot down and she does now of course this is the this is the only real turning point there is no real turning point the only turning point here is that now she has all his money because he happened to have ten thousand dollars kicking around for reasons and so now she has a gun and some money and not a care in the world so she hooks up with nadine who she just passes by chance in a hallway and they decide to go to Paris to hook up with one of Nadine's drug dealer friends for no real reason because she has no real honor toward these people. I think it's simply just something to do. Yeah, someone suggested it and she was like, all right, yep, yeah, I'll go do that. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the man who told her to go to Paris to meet this Noel girl um, gets killed moments after he tells her to go to yeah. Paris. Yeah. And she watches it or sees it afterwards and just kind of, yeah. Puts on her headphones, goes for a walk, bumps into Manu, and is all like, yeah, sure. You want to drive me to Paris? I'm down. It is so very nonchalant and so very, you know, I've had days like that where I go and do some laundry, have my headphones on, bump into a friend, go for a coffee, go back home and decide I'm going to watch a movie, you know? Mm -hmm. It's really with that whole, that same level of decision-making skill and that whole level of importance. That's the same way they are approaching a, a cross-country murder spree and now that apparently uh in interviews with the filmmakers that was really the point of it it's this nihilist exploration of giving no fucks and just going cross-country on a murder spree for what reason none because you can Mm -hmm. they make fun of the police while they're doing it they don't try to cover their tracks they're absolutely reckless and they treat men like objects and it's not only like they're turning the tables and victimizing men the way that they have been victimized. I have a feeling that they've always just sort of treated men like this. It's really no different. It's a regular Thursday evening with these girls. Except that now they know that if they get caught, they're going to get caught for all kinds of way more horrible stuff so they can treat these men like dirt. They've got guns, so now if there's nothing these men could do that they couldn't just shoot them and have it end. They have all kinds of money, so they can run in absolutely any direction and get away with absolutely anything they're doing, because that's the, their MO thus far. They're also 
just having a lot of fun. Now, I find in a lot of other films, whether rape revenge films, horror films or not, it's typically men that are just having a lot of fun with treating women like dirt, uh, getting hookers and treating them like dogs, and that's exactly what they're doing. You don't see that a lot in film. If a woman is victimizing a man, it's usually like in a dominatrix sort of sense, and it's a sexualized sense, and it's from the male gaze. I can't even tell from what lens this is really positioned from. Yeah, because it's a very strange sort of mix of this. They're having fun, but they're also being very aggressive and very... They're they're having fun, but they're also doing something sick and twisted. And the fun that's related to that goes from, like, this kind of sinister feeling where, you know, they're laughing and having fun, and then the next second they're killing someone. And it feels like this, like unreliable border between fun and murder so you're never really quite sure like when they stay with the brother and sister they have sex with a couple of guys and i remember thinking to myself are they going to kill them you just really don't know what they're going to do like they let some go they kill some it's really you're unsure in that you know even when one of them almost offends one of them because he says now i want to see you make out with her so as soon as he tries to take an upper hand you're like "Uh uh-oh that's a death sentence but she just tells him to get out and Mm -hmm. he does and he lives it's really that simple and then they're with this couple that is sort of like reminding them that they're being chased by the police thankful that they'd gotten the sister out of a sticky situation by killing cops is how they got her out of a sticky situation and they killed cops right in front of them so it's very apparent that they're killers They have nothing to hide. They have nothing to lose. And these people are not necessarily challenging them, but they're reminding them that they're not bulletproof and they're not going to live forever and they're probably going to get caught. And they still don't get killed. So then they send them to kill someone they don't like. (laughs) Which is one good reason to have a killer stay with you. But it was interesting in the scene when they kill the cops and then we have this girl who... I don't even know what her situation is, why she was being she was being interrogated by the cops. I think or that the cops were really on the trail of Nadine and Manu and they were stopping women and just decarding them and seeing mm-hmm. if they were either of those two. Well, she says you can't just leave me here and gets into the car with these people that she just witnessed them kill these cops and then like you said later on in the scene they're talking about them being on the run. So you get the feeling she probably knows who they are. Mm-hmm. But purposefully gets into the car with them and says, you know, she's being pushy with them. I'm coming with you guys. And that was, I thought that was a death sentence as well. I'm thinking, oh, they're going to take this girl now. Now they have, you know, a hostage. Now they have a friend. Who's this person and why are they coming with them? Where someone who's maybe not really done anything gets murdered for no particular reason. You know, it's a very like you live, you die kind of thing. Yeah. Extremely random. Although, um, And I'd hate to say something like, oh, if only the script were this, or oh, if only they had shown that, because you can't change time. And the film is what it is, and I love it as it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't see a lot of the news coverage. They do allude to it. They have papers. They know that they're in the news by this point. Uh, But we don't get to see a lot of it. So that doesn't become part of the story for us. But I do have a feeling, if uh, um, if I can project a little into the script here, I feel that for once the women of the community don't feel victimized where if we want to say something like um paul bernardo when he before when he was a scarborough rapist 
He was raping women in the area, and women had a curfew. Women weren't safe. Women alone, you had to be in. So there was a lot of rules. Um, all of a sudden, because of who he was victimizing, when and where, to keep yourself safe. Now, if these two girls are in the news, the rules are to keep yourself safe is don't be a man that fucks women. Women are fucking safe. Women mm-hmm. alone are doubly safe because they've shown they might even just take you along on their little twisted ride. Yeah. So for once in history of fucking maniacal killers victimizing and terrorizing a community, the women are the safe ones. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool, even though it's just a tiny little subtext that I'm really projecting a whole bunch into the fake news that isn't even really talked about in this film. But that is why I think that she instantly knows them and trusts them and knows that she can just jump in the car because they're not going to leave her there. No. I think it's interesting the lack of that news coverage and we don't have any sort of outside experiences where we often have that in serial killer films. Like we have the we have the cop chasing down the serial killer, we have news articles, we have TV programs talking about the serial killer and you know where they were last spotted or what they're doing. We have none of that. And it really lends itself to this sort of journey story that we're on with them. They have no contact with the outside world. They're not calling home to say, you know, I'm okay. There's nobody waiting at the door for them. You know, there's, they have just gone and we're on this adventure with them. So if the news is saying this about them, well, we don't know because they're not stopping to watch the news. They're not stopping to engage with any of that. So we don't get that kind of outside perspective. We're talking about this idea of the gaze and I don't even know if it's a male or female gaze. It's it's Nadine and Manu's gaze. That's all we have. You know, we're on this trip with them and we just see from their perspectives what they're getting, you know? True, true. And it is like they don't pay attention. They don't care about the news coverage. I think the only time they really mention it, it's almost like, haha, isn't that weird how they're not really chasing us? Or they are, but they never find us. And we're like totally like getting hotel rooms and spending money like mad and just killing people willy nilly and they still can't find us. And that's frightening. You know, the kind of, again, this detached nature from it. Not, there's no remorse. There's a, hey, like, look at what we're getting away with. Let's keep doing it. Let's do more. Yeah. Um, the scene where they, um, take the guy back to the hotel room and uh, Manu is giving him oral sex. Oh, my favorite scene. Yes. Um, And she ends up throwing up on him. As a joke. As a joke. To be a dick. (laughs) On a dick. (laughs) It was, for me, a very interesting sort of scene because of this concept of humiliation involved with sex And you were talking about this kind of idea of, like, the dominant woman. And then we have this idea of, you know, women, especially women who are, you know, hookers or people who work in the sex trade might have, you know, be treated very poorly, might be treated in certain ways, treated, you know, as a subhuman or something of this kind of nature, where we have this woman completely, you know, turning the tables on this man in this way and utterly humiliating him. Again, this comes back to this idea of sexuality to me. So something where there's lots of oral sex being performed in this film. We have lots of moments of this very graphic images of oral sex. Mm -hmm. And men tend to be the kind of people who encourage, of course, this sort of behavior. And in a rather violent, humiliating, 
oppressive sort of way. Like a woman's down on his on her knees, he's got the back of the head or something like that. Yeah, she's utterly defenseless and could be killed or choked at any moment. Yeah. Exactly. So she takes that, turns the tables, and throws up on him. He's humiliated. Suddenly she's in the power position. And I found this to be such an interesting moment when this happened that I was kind of clear getting clarification from you going did that like what what just happened there is that and you're like yeah i'm trying to not laugh my ass off because it's hilarious to me and that's exactly what is going on there and it's hilarious to manu and it's hilarious to nadine as well and the man is mortified beyond mortified he can't believe what she has just done and it's almost as if the look on his face as if he saw everything that they had done he's that mortified all she did is puke on his dick Mm -hmm. and angry he's calling them all kinds of names from the bathroom and all of this and just that utter humiliation and they're laughing at him there's these two women laughing at him his sexuality at his dick they're they're laughing at him and no man wants that in any situation it's usually a, a scene you see like i said not even in rape revenge not only in horror not only in any genre it's in in film and entertainment we see this used as a device where the hookers are generally treated like dirt and then laughed at and sent on their way and it's a horrible scene that's used over and over again and it's used as a device and yeah it's usually used to show that these guys are jockey dicks so now it's being used on our two heroes Mm -hmm. (laughs) i hate that word for this film yuck (laughs) our two heroes are now those jockey dicks that Mm -hmm. and they're humiliating somebody they're using as a sexual object and they've just given them absolutely no gratification whatsoever and it's in a huge joking manner Mm -hmm. and he ends up rejecting her to a point because she wants to have sex without a condom and he's saying no i'm absolutely not going to do that and then she offers the oral sex as kind of you know as an alternative to that and then ends up doing this humiliating act to him and it's a really interesting almost again this sort of idea of the revenge that i see coming you know she he did something to her so he's she's going to get him like five times worse you know Mm -hmm. i'm going to do something so awful to you and it was definitely that entire scene is absolutely fascinating to me though it's not something that i've ever seen um in any sort of traditional film either um i've never even seen it alluded to i don't think even in like a comedy or drama or anything where a, a woman pukes on a guy's dick in any other rape revenge film that's a death sentence they're asking to be killed. Mm-hmm. Instead, you know, they're pretty much bulletproof at this point. And if anyone's going to be doing the killing, it's them. Definitely. And then we have this interesting back and forth of these girls, like, talking about how they wanted to have these good witty lines. So they start just saying stuff to this band. Yeah, this is their, their solution to previously. They're like, wow, like, we're killing all these people, but we don't have much to say. What we need is some, like cool dialogue like in the movies and they're mostly joking about this i actually read an interview where someone thought that that was part of the dialogue and that they were ad-libbing and they were talking about the dialogue of the film (laughs) which is silly that someone would misread it to that point because they make it very clear that like hey we're killing all these people well we need some cool one-liners and i'm thinking like pulp fiction right that's what they want they want some cool one-liners so then they come up with their cool one-liners when they're killing this man and their one-liners are that they're the no condom dickhead killers or the condom using dickhead killers yeah absolutely absurd ridiculous hilarious and so very wrong 
Yeah, it's this weird mixture of you being slightly uncomfortable, but you're laughing at the same time, but you're horrified because you don't know what they're going to do next. And it's really kind of an interesting sort of intersection of all these reactions to what's going on. That entire scene, every part of it, I felt that that we had these moments, you know, it kept changing. Like, I'm laughing one second, I'm feeling kind of sick to my stomach the next second. And in that scene, you see a lot of things that you've just never seen before, so I don't think you know how to react to it at all. And it would be refreshing if we could say that it's uh, an equal playing field when it comes to the way people are being treated as sex objects in film. But you don't normally see men being sexualized and then humiliated and made fun of in a scene. That's usually something that you see being done to women. The, The peeking on the dick, which I just think is so unique. And you don't see them making fun of themselves normally during a scene like that where you're already in a spot where you're, this is surreal. These are like, they're flipping everything on its head and now they're making fun of their own dialogue in a way by coming up with just the weirdest one-liners where they're the uh, condom dickhead killers, which is just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So this is their one-liners that they've come up with on the spot and they think it's hilarious. So not only do they think that they're hilarious as little killers, they think it's hilarious that they've humiliated this gentleman and they think it's hilarious that they're coming out with one-liners. This is like the, the one of the party scenes in a way because they're having such a good time with it. And then of course they're done having such a good time and they kill this gentleman. It's one of the more bloodier deaths too. But a lot of it happens off screen, too, which is interesting because, like you said, it is one of the bloody, more bloody deaths in the film. But yet, at the same time, we're not we're seeing them acting on this body, but we're not seeing the body with the blood and all of this happening in the same moments. Yeah, a lot of the violence is really, really quick. When they're killing people, it's normally by guns. So it's a very impersonal, very quick death. Mm-hmm. And it's usually just to get the person out of their way and shut them up. Uh, and be done with them. This one, they take a little more time and it is a far more angry. They don't really show a lot of emotion other than mirth or enjoyment or the exertion of actually kicking the hell out of somebody. There is a lot of blood that they show, but they don't show the actual impact. And they're not, you know, there's probably no budget, of course, for special effects at all in this. There isn't any real gore that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a more violent, bloody death. And the way that they get around that, really, by the end, to show just how violent and how how domineering they are and how they really have put their foot down and are stepping on this man because they literally do is there's blood splattered all over and you see one black high heel with a nice nylon in it a very pretty feminine leg covered in blood on a bloody carpet that has just finished stomping on this guy's face with her spike heel it is an it's a very very powerful moment and a very powerful image this juxtaposition between the blood and the violence and the gore and then we have this high heel like a representation of femininity a representation of being a woman but it's covered in blood so it's it was really really interesting for me this kind of moment of seeing this the two mashing of you know we have these women we have violence and now they are together in this like sick sort of relationship yeah yeah and it wasn't just an all of a sudden thing where they were pushed and pushed and pushed till they snapped they've been spending the time pushing and pushing him waiting for him to snap in a way mm-hmm. and 
have been having a great time with humiliating this guy. It's so very backwards. And it's really hard, like, once you watch it, just to even know how to take it, because you've really not seen anything like that. And this isn't a new film. This is a 15-year-old film. So have we not seen anything like that? I know, right? No, I just I didn't take it that way. And, yeah, it is it is the older film. Well, not older, but it's 15. Yeah. Um, no, and I've, I mean, I pursue horror on a regular basis, but you don't often see women perpetrating this kind of br- brutal violence. We see violence happening, but even like you said, throughout this film, we have a lot of, you know, the gunshot wounds. So that's a quick death, a very mm-hmm. impersonal, it just happens, it's done. Where this moment where, you know, they're they're stomping and kicking this man and it's all bloody and then we have the high heel... We don't see that in films happening like that. Women seem to be much more removed from the murdering. If they're doing the killing, they're, you know, using some kind of weapon. Yeah, aren't we supposed to be taking it back and penetrating them with some sort of steel dick? Isn't yeah. that how we're supposed to kill people? Exactly, exactly. You know, we're not supposed to use guns or be angry or just kill for fun. We're supposed to be taking something back and penetrating them. Yeah. And these women really do, especially in this particular scene. It was fascinating to me to kind of see it unfold in that way. Mm-hmm. They don't use knives. I don't think at all. I'd have to really th- like watch it again uh, to double check on that. But I'm positive. It's always like these quick, careless, removed deaths with, by gun or um, this one at the end where they've humiliated this gentleman. Now... Toward the end, they do have a, a like their sprees kind of ramp up in violence, uh, going from just shooting a random girl at an ATM for money to shooting men they've had sex with um, or men that hit on them in the streets. They're just randomly shooting men for saying that they're hot or whatever or want, trying to have sex with them. Uh, and then they're going to this humiliating this man and having a very violent uh, death. And then they end up at this um, sex club. And it is it is another one of my favorite scenes. Because uh, the sex club seems pretty cool. Like, it's not too uh, raunchy. It seems like a fairly up-and-up couples-oriented uh, sex club. Mm-hmm. And they're not there for half a drink. <laughs> it's like, I can't take you anywhere the minute that a guy says something inappropriate. And it's not even like a sexual innuendo inappropriate. It's just something they just don't want to hear at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they go on this killing spree in this club. And I found that that was one of the most powerful scenes, too, because, again, it's a mixture of men and women. So we've seen most of their violence has been perpetrated on men. We have the woman at the ATM machine at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's mostly men, if I'm not mistaken, that they're yeah. attacking throughout yeah. the film. Like we have the co- the guy with the car that they hit with their car. And then, you know, we have our, our gunshot victims. But then we have this scene in the sex club and they're just they're just killing. Just killing everybody, mm-hmm. basically. And anyone that moves. Um, and there's, you know, probably like 15, 20 people in the club. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Manu is busy humiliating and probably just randomly shooting the people in that room, Nadine goes into the next room and clears house and kills everybody. Uh, very impersonal, quick gunshots. Not much to be said. Uh, no real emotion. No real, the looks on their face are fairly blank. Um, until they have probably what would be pictured as the coup de grace. Um, 
because they have had the rape that set all of this in motion and they never chased after or caught those perpetrators. It's not about revenge for that particular rape. Um, they sort of, in a way, if they're taking it out on anyone, they're taking it out on everyone. But this one final guy that they kill seems to be the one that really gets it in the end. And this is the second time where they're really humiliating a man. Mm -hmm. But I think at the beginning of his humiliation, he's kind of playing along. Mm -hmm. Not only because he's in a sex club, and this is just, you know, where he hangs out and he's comfortable being a sex object. But I think he's really thinking, like, oh, if I just do what they say, they might let me go. If I be a good boy and be sexy, which is, again, a lot of where you see women in these films. Where men order a woman around sexually, like get down on your knees or bark like a dog or whatever, call me daddy. And the mm. women do it thinking if I just do what he's saying I should do, maybe he'll let me live. And I really think that's where this gentleman is coming from. When they're asking him to get down on his hands and knees, drop his drawers, and oink like a pig. Mm-hmm. And they're told a couple of times, it might just be Manu, but it might be both of them, are told several times in the film to get on their hands and knees during the sex scenes. Men have told them that. So they're reappropriating that exact statement and saying to him, you know, get on your hands and knees and then, you know, take down your pants. And then he does when he starts, you know, doing his oinking and he's he's moving his he's ass around. His butt. And there was no moment of them saying, you know, make it sexy. Like, you know, there was no oh, encouragement like, on yeah, that. Babe. And then... Honestly, when I was watching it, I kind of was on the same wavelength as the gentleman on the floor thinking maybe since they haven't killed him yet, if they if he does what they're telling him to, maybe they'll let him live or something. That's not the case. No. <laughs> Unfortunately for our gentleman friend on the floor, winking like a pig, Manu decides once again to use her gun mm-hmm. to kill somebody with no fanfare. Except that with a little more imagination. Because they've already accused themselves of having no imagination. They've already accused themselves of having no good one-liners. They've accused themselves of, like, being able to get away with way too much. So they use a little imagination this time. A man who sticks the barrel of a gun up a guy's ass and shoots him. Again, it's not extremely gory. They cut away. You know what's happened. You see where the gun is going and you hear the gun go off, but it's not bloody in anything. Again, probably due to budgetary restraints. It's one of the most disturbing kills in the entire film to me, too. Because as it was going, I'm going, oh, no, no, they're not going to, no, they're, oh, yep, they're doing it. And then, you know, he dies in that way. And it is, it's this moment where... There's nothing that can prepare you for that happening. Like him on the floor and me sitting at home watching it are both thinking the same thing. Well, he hasn't been killed yet. Maybe there's still hope for him. No, he has the most humiliating and worst death out of all the members of this sex club that they're at. And I really wonder as to the motivations of going to the sex club. Because they find the invitation for this libertine club, and they decide to go. And if you look at their outfits, they are they are done up. They're like, dolled up. Yeah, a lot oh, of the yeah. time they spend dressed as men, or like not dressed as men, but like just dressed like not sexy, just normal, like big overcoats and weird hats and dumb pants, just regular yeah. clothes. Very very generic clothes. Like you know, they're not making any style you know attempts. Mm-hmm. But when they go to this club, they are, you know, dressed to the nines. And 
I couldn't help but wonder, you know, are they are they trying to fit in with this crowd? Are they looking for someone to lure away? Did they go in with the intention of killing everybody? Did somebody just say the wrong thing and they go off on that? Because it's so quick that they have their guns out and they're starting to shoot people. So they had to have been in some way prepared for this moment. But it was a very, very strange scene, I found. Somewhat, but I really think that almost anything is ending like this because they... It's like they by this point they can't even go into a store without shooting everybody. They can't have a they can't have a gentleman around without shooting him. They can't do anything without it turning within moments into just killing everybody. So I don't think they necessarily plan to go. To the, I think they just plan to go to the club. Like you and I would be like, hey, let's go check out this place. Yeah. They were really just like, hey, here's this card. Let's go to the sex club and check it out. That's we like sex. You yeah. Know, we have nice clothes because one of us is a sex worker and the other one is a porn star. So. They get dolled up and they go out and it just so happens that within moments they're killing everybody. Because I guess that's just what happens with these girls. Mm -hmm. And like the violence in that way escalates, like you said, to the point that they can't even go to a store. They can't do anything without having their guns on them and ready to kill somebody in that exact moment. Where, you know, when they're first hooking up with some guys earlier on when they're on their journey, they're not killing them right away. They Like, they let that one guy go. They just kind of are a, a little less dramatic about it. Yeah. A little less trigger happy. <laughs> Very much. I guess they're also feeling a little threatened by this point. They've had to kill police who are obviously looking for them, so maybe they are a little more wary at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the film is nearing the end by this point and it's almost like in so so many times in this film you want to expect the inevitable based on a film that's made from a male perspective that is a rape revenge film proper where this isn't so you don't know what to expect anymore but your brain is still like oh the inevitable is going to happen one of them is going to get caught or they're both going to you know, go off the edge of the edge of the cliff, like in Thelma and Louise or something. So you're wanting to expect the inevitable, and of course that's not what happens. Um, unexpectedly, Nadine and Manu pull up at a gas station just to pop in and get some coffee, and Manu goes in and gets in a firefight with the clerk within seconds for no reason probably, and gets shot in the neck. Mm -hmm. It is the only time that either of them have any sort of real emotion elicited, not while they're getting treated poorly, watching their junkie friend get shot, getting raped, getting beat up by their brother, killing other people, stealing, getting away with cops. Other than mirth, happiness, amusement, they, they show those emotions, if that's emotion. Um, not until Manu is dying and quickly dead in Nadine's arms... Does Nadine have a moment of breakdown? She actually sheds a tear. You actually, her face, she does convey emotion. And she even says, this is no time to be cracking up, not now. Mm -hmm. And it's a very powerful way to end the film because you have this expectation that they're going out together. Like it's They've already just... talked about ways to kill themselves. And when it's Manu who brings that up, who says, you know, we're going to go jump off of a bridge, I think. With no bungee cord. Yeah, yeah. So they're going to go and do this jump. And Nadine says, you're going to have to push me because I'm not going to do it. Like, Nadine doesn't have this death drive. Or she probably does, but she isn't as upfront about it as Manu is. No, she really just wants to put on her headphones, take a stroll, and see what's what's up. Yeah. 
but Menu knew that you know like they they'd come to all of this she said she wants to go out as good as it started so she has she wants this big climatic ending death and she doesn't get that at all you know they go into the truck stop to get a coffee and randomly this guy's got a gun and she's dead yeah and we don't even really see anything happen no she walks in and we hear a gunshot Mm -hmm. so we don't even get her big death her big spectacular firefight ending Mm -hmm. at all and then you brought up a really interesting point when we were watching it when um Nadine takes her vengeance on this store clerk who's killed Manu and starts shooting him. And it is so reminiscent of Pulp Fiction because she's in this kind of man suit. Nadine's got this kind of man suit thing going on. She's holding the gun kind of sideways. Her hair's falling over her eyes. It's just, it looks like a scene of John Travolta from Pulp Fiction. It really did. Nadine is extremely serious. She is very angry. She is not amused for the first time in the film. And she's going to shoot him over and over and over again with sort of an overkill that is only brought on by passion. And there's been really none of that. Lots of killing, but no passion in this film. So it's like the only moment of that. And it is very manly and it's shot with the camera is at a lower angle so she's like lording over this guy and she's very big and dressed very dark and yeah her hair is not very feminine she's no makeup on at all and that's sort of a theme with their their costuming and i don't know if a lot of this not only the costuming by this point is by accident or design where they're dressed more androgynously to the point they're they're dressed quite manly by the end especially nadine Uh, who was, from the beginning, far more feminine of the two. And when they're being, and usually at their most violent, they're dressed at their most androgynous, Mm -hmm. except the high heels scene, of course. That's the only real outlier there. And And I don't know if not only their costume, but her mannerisms by the end are extremely male. I don't know if that's by accident or design either. I think they might have just been lucky in a way because it doesn't seem like that sophisticated of a film. No. And they they have this interesting relationship, the two of them together. So I feel like Nadine has to rein Manu in a lot because mm-hmm. she's just going to go wild and kill people and do all of this. And a lot of these moments, you mentioned she's the instigator. Like Manu's the one who starts something and Nadine finishes it kind of thing. Yeah, Nadine never talks her out of any of this. But... Oh, no. And she's laughing and having fun. She's yeah. not blameless. But she always seems to be the one left to finish things. She's reminding her often, too, that they're going to Paris to meet up with Noel. And I think at least twice, Manu's like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot. Yeah, we're having fun. We're killing people. Like, yeah. who cares where we're going? It's about the journey, not the destination. Exactly. So now that person who she's sort of coddled in a way and had to rein in is suddenly torn from her. So she's extremely angry the way that a parent would be if a child were killed. It's that sort of passion and that sort of overkill that mm-hmm. this random store clerk gets. And she burns the body, which is a really interesting moment I found because I didn't know what she was going to do with the body. Frankly, I thought she was going to keep it with her. Well, you aren't know? women supposed to just break down and cry and hold it to them like a stillborn? <laughs> yeah. yeah, isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're not supposed to go all Valhalla. Yeah, it was. It was very interesting. This sudden moment of just. Like like you said, she breaks down. We have the emotion. This is the first time we both noticed it, too, where the music is finally 
somber. It's finally related to what's going on. Yeah, it's not an upbeat punk song or some sort of 007 Bond, you know, pseudo jazz kind of riff going on. It, it's genuinely sad, and she's having an emotional reaction, and she goes and she burns this body. Now, they've left a trail of bodies in their wake. They've not done anything to take care of any yeah, of these bodies. they never disposed of a body or cleaned up not anything once. after. Not once, no. They leave everything. So she feels this, you know, compulsion to have to go and take care of this body. So she drags her into the van and then she takes her out to this secluded spot and then lights her on fire. Yeah. And it is, it's this moment where you can see the kind of powerful impact, the powerful relationship that they had, that she's willing to go to this kind of trouble. And then we see her head out. And I figure she's going to go still meet up with Noelle. That's what she's been talking about seems since the beginning. Seems so. Cause she puts on her headphones and it seems like she's on her way. Mm-hmm. Just like she was when they met. And she's playing the same song that she was when she met Manu in the hall mm. or in the bus tunnel. Yeah. So it's like reverting back to the beginning again, getting back on the path, getting back to her journey. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned this when we are watching. Like, what do you do now? Your partner in crime's gone Mm-hmm. And she was really the instigator, so suddenly she's by herself. So she needs to figure something out. And her solution that it seems to be implied is suicide. This is what she seems like she's going to be doing in these final moments. Which is almost a double whammy now, because you've seen her first emotional reaction. You're like, oh, fuck, shit's really real. She's just burnt her now best friend's body. And it is extremely emotional for the first time. And the music's kicking in. The lighting's kind of somber because um, that golden hour where they're shooting, I believe. So it is really good lighting for once. Uh, it's still really grainy as hell because it's a video, but it's really good lighting. So it is really well orchestrated scene and then she has a gun to her own temple and the look on her face again you get the second time within seconds of her with really amazingly active genuine emotion she is scared out of her fucking mind Mm -hmm. but she has no other recourse she needs to kill herself and you almost want her to because she has nothing left no you just want you want her to be done Mm -hmm. you know and again we have this belief when we watch films like this especially horror or serial killer films or anything that at the end the monster the bad guy the killer has to be punished they have to be held accountable for their crimes usually with their own life that that's usually how it goes so when she's looking like she's going to commit suicide it seems fitting that just seems like the natural end of the film but that's not what ends up happening no because she closes her eyes, she's gripping the trigger, and you hear a bang of some sort, and the screen goes black, and she hits the ground, and the camera's sideways on the ground with her, and then she opens her eyes. Mm-hmm. Because that bang wasn't her, with her final solution at all. It was the cops that are surrounding her that she didn't notice, because she's had her eyes closed and her gun to her temple for so long, and her music blaring in her ears of that last song that she heard when she met Manu for the first time, she didn't notice that she was surrounded by a fucking SWAT team. And they've suddenly pinned her to the ground in that violent way that cops were trained to do. It was good reason. And the gun is out of her hand and she's going to live and have to face justice for her crime. It freezes, too. We have a freeze frame at the end of the film, but we still have dialogue going on. And cops, what they're asking... Yeah. yeah, and they're asking, where's the other bitch? This is what they're asking you know Nadine on the ground and she's she's devastated obviously Mm -hmm. but again it was a very 
to me it was a very powerful way to close out this film because we have these men perpetrating this violence on these women to the point that they don't really break as much as they you know they they're broken down enough to go yeah, on this like, killing spree. I'm just gonna treat you the way you treat us so whatever exactly this is the way people treat one another that's more like it actually finally I put the the my finger on it it's not that ooh we've been treated like this so we're gonna like turn the tables or oh you're treating me so terribly I finally snapped it's this is the way people treat one another so it's completely gender stripped at that point mm-hmm. sort of but then the cops yelling where's the other bitch and then right away I'm like it never fucking ends. Does yeah, it? exactly. We're right back at the beginning again to me. And like you said, you're bringing up the music of when, you know, we were first introduced to the relationship between Manu and Nadine. We first have them introduce each other. And then we have the exact same song. And I'd actually love to watch it again and see if I can pinpoint a moment where we almost get a reversal, like a foil, like a fold onto itself. Yeah. Because that moment with these cops, you know, treating her in this way and talking to her in this way just mimics reflects the beginning again for me and how they were treated right then and it feels like it was I don't know it feels like it might have been folded up really nicely in a way that I didn't notice until you know looking back and sort of looking at how those scenes ended with it so okay so it is an aggressively sophisticated film maybe it is maybe it is it's insane in a way because it is like budget free as if like it seems to be no budget mm-hmm. um, it is uh, written directed and starred by um, porn actresses and things like that and uh, not in big names by any means uh, it's filmed on crappy stock and it's filmed in crappy light and it's filmed with like what appears to be at most times ad lib dialogue um, but just lightning in a bottle Mm-hmm. Fully, is it by accident or design? I can't even decide. Yeah, and, and to a point, it barely matters because mm-hmm. the reaction that it gets is still the same regardless. I thought it was interesting when you were telling me about when you acquired this film and how you were kind of warned about it from the guy that you... Did you purchase it or did you rent it? I purchased it. Yeah, it was Elgin Street Video was closing out, actually. So they were selling off oh. stock, like really dirt cheap. Well, there's even... Um, on the very front of the film, there's a great big warning label, and it's saying this film contains prolonged sex scenes of an extremely explicit nature, and scenes of graphic violence, which some mu- viewers may find shocking and disturbing. And often a horror film, you're not going to get a big warning on the front cover. Like you're going to get a rating on it to let us know. But I found that interesting. Like just on the very front, this giant warning label. So I'm expecting some serious shit like that's just my expectation given the reaction your store clerk had given the warning on the front of the dvd and it wasn't nearly the brutal the brutality level that i was expecting i guess for that i think it was just the one or two scenes that really warranted that sort of warning i like how it says top 10 european films of 2000 and i'm like Never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? The, no. Like, I know a lot of people that watch European films, especially since 2000, but it's not on the top of any list. Thousands of titles as a must-see, I'm sure, because it's not something that's really talked about. No. Um, even in the genre of rape revenge, which is talked about. I actually heard of this film through the special effects magician, Rémy Couture, who's most recently worked on, I think, Disco Path out of Quebec um, I'd interviewed him a couple years ago at a fan expo 
and we were talking about really, really violent, questionable, extreme gore and effects and stuff like that. And he was talking about some of the things that people are calling torture porn right now. Mm. And he's like, that's not even really fucking gory, and it's not even really extreme, and it's not even really scary. And he's like, have you seen Aftermath, or have you seen Bessemois? And I'm like, I've seen Aftermath, but not the other. So right away, like you were saying, when somebody says something's fucked up, you need to see it, I was like, well, if he thinks, if he's putting this on par with Aftermath, with fucked up in this, then I definitely need to see it. So it's been on my list since then. So when I saw it, I just couldn't not buy it, right? Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't not watch it a couple times, and I couldn't not force you to watch it and then talk about it. Uh, it says, Thelma and Louise with actual penetration. <laughs> and there is a lot of actual penetration. It yes, is extremely, is. like, I think we've done a really good job thus far explaining a lot of the killing. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're like horror affectionados. So we're looking at this from like a horror perspective. And we've talked a lot about the um, defamation of men and the weird twists of like sexual cruelty that's going on in this film. And we did mention that there is full on penetration, but we have to make it really clear that there is pornographic levels, triple X sex going on in this film, and a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And there's no cutting like you're, you're seeing everything happen these people are actually performing the acts and this is not something you see in a lot of films it's we're not, not used to that i mean no Rene kutcher came under fire um for necrophilic scenes in the movies he'd made and it was all prosthetic cocks uh mm. these are not prosthetic cocks people no stunt cocks were used in the making of this film no latex was wasted they are actual cocks mm-hmm. and many of them too many many of them some with puke on them I think it's just hilarious because I've just never really seen that. No, I've never seen that in a film before, and I found it disturbing but hilarious at the same time. I found it refreshing. Refreshing. I I found it refreshing. I I can't think of another word. Well, I love when a film does something that I've never seen before, and I feel in many ways this film did a lot that I hadn't seen. And just the graphic sex coupled with the graphic violence... It was such an interesting combination because we so often think of horror films and sexuality together. Like we, you mentioned, I love Herschel Gordon Lewis. He got a lot of his early films doing uh, sexy exploitation films, and then he moved over to horror. But you still see all of these, you know, really unnecessary, gratuitous shots of you know half naked women and women in lingerie. You're still seeing these in his films because that's his background. To this day, there are jokes about the gratuitous sex scenes and the unnecessary tits that you see in these movies. They just come up. You expect it from horror. Even if they're not even used properly, where sometimes when it was fresh, it's like, oh, titillation of titties and boobs and like underage sex and teenagers are going to do it. And then the killer kills them. So you're all excited. And then it's like, whoa, I've been shocked and appalled with blood and gore. And it worked a couple times. But like any gag, it gets old fast. And... Now it hardly even works anymore, but it's still like expected. And it's yeah, a you're thing just so used does. to it. Yeah, it's what you it's what you've come to expect, and it's what you look for in a horror film. You see, you know, a certain stock character, and you have the expectation: well, she's going to be the one who's naked in the shower and trying to run away from the killer, and slips on the bathroom floor. Like you can totally line that all up. So the use of this graphic sexuality paired with the graphic violence we have that expectation for horror but the way it was done i've never seen something done like this before mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so 
Let's say moi with Karen Bach and Rafaela Anderson. It's a film by Virginia Despente and Sarah Lee Trinity, if I'm pronouncing any of that correctly. Uh, it's a 2000 film. It's kind of hard to find. There is the original Remstar version, the first release that we'd had. It's a, I guess it's a Canadian release. Um, and then there is a special edition release later on with some... Uh, literature and things like that surrounding the film. So that's really the one to get. The Remstar version is pretty crappy from what I understand. Not that it can be improved upon much. Don't expect a Blu-ray release of this because there's no improving any of the quality of this. But that doesn't even matter because if you're interested in seeing a really, really unique take on a genre that a subgenre of horror that got some strange popularity with really strange reasoning behind this popularity of rape revenge films. I think it is really the godmother of them all, even though it's not necessarily a horror film. Mm-hmm. What is your take on the genre of this film? I've had a hard time classifying it myself because I tend to want to classify films myself before relying on the classification of others. It doesn't have a genre classification on it. What do you think? We've had some interesting conversations about this kind of thing because something that I might classify as horror, I know you would be more likely to be like, oh, that's more of a thriller. I wouldn't necessarily. And like when you start getting into science fiction, then you get science fiction horror. Is it horror? Is it sci-fi? So I find that, you know, it's really hard to kind of establish the lines. But at the risk of being way too specific on this, to me, it's very much a serial killer film. This is what I'm sort of seeing from it because in watching so many serial killer films, you start to look for these certain conventions, you look for these tropes, and a lot of it was coming out to me, at least in this one. However, it's also very much a buddy movie (laughs) and a road trip movie. So, I mean, you can kind of qualify it in that way. Calling it a horror, I feel like is a bit of a stretch. As you mentioned, there are horrific elements of it, for sure. It is horrific, but I don't know that I could call it horror. What do you think? Thriller, mm-hmm. to a certain extent. But I think that it's just far too gratuitous to not call it horror, mm-hmm. because it is extremely horrific, and there's no other real home for it. The only other home for this place is porn, but it's far too violent outside of, like, the sexorcist or, or whatever uh, to be in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, as much as I hate the term torture porn, um, it is kind of torture porn because it's pornographic. Mm-hmm. So I can't really, it's hard for me, but I feel like I can't call it anything other than horror because I wouldn't recommend this to absolutely anybody but the most extreme horror fan because I know they've seen all of these elements. They've seen super graphic sex. They've seen sex and death combined and they've seen really graphic sex and humiliation and people treated in in a very inhumane manner. They're the only people that have watched a genre that has all those elements. So I can't see it fitting anywhere else, but I also don't feel it fits there. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's kind of slippery in that way. Um, The term exploitation film comes to mind with this. Now, when we say exploitation film, there's certain ideas come up and for me there's a lot of horror exploitation like yeah. I, I think of that as a, a subgenre of horror in general but I think that there's a lot of explo- exploitation film in this movie but again 
and I can see horror film fans being, why didn't you tell me it was a porno? <laughs> it's yeah. kind of, hmm. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, I, I, had, I would have a lot of trouble sort of characterizing it. I know when we were watching it, there were moments I'm going, I don't know if I'd call this horror. But then we'd have these such graphic, violent moments, then you're right. Like, what else? Yeah, our, what our, else our little horror holes are being filled. <laughs> they are. So we're getting what we come to horror for. And porn. Yeah. <laughs> you get a little bit of everything. And a buddy movie. Yeah. Yeah. A road trip movie. Sweet. I'm glad that we could watch this together. Yeah, buddy. me too. Yeah, it was a good experience. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for listening in. On that note of our buddy film horror porn extravaganza, I'm Typical Lydia. I'm Amy Jane Vosper. And you've been listening to Dead Air. <laughs>